trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yeah, you might have noticed I took a couple of days off. And uh, the reason I did this was I had to uh, had to travel to Colorado so that I could go and celebrate with my daughter, Mason, her graduation from nursing school. Pretty amazing experience. I th- this was uh, this is the first time in a while we've had most of our family together. I have another daughter who lives in uh, in Germany with her husband and kids. And, you know, the, other than that, this is the first time I think I've had all my kids in one place at the same time in in a very long time. And it was uh, it was very nice. The weather was not as nice, but that's okay. Beautiful, green, lots of uh, fun sights to see. But holy cow, it's good to be back. There's a lot to talk about. And uh, let's see, today is the day after Mother's Day, so it's the 15th of, of May, 2023. Just want to mention this because one of my sponsors, and that is ClimbingUpward.com, that's my friend Dr. John C. Pulver, through the end of today... You can get 35% off anything you order from either Climbing Upward. I just actually got my copy of his book about surviving your family of origin and uh, also his Climbing Upward music. So if you click on the link I provided in the show notes, that's something you might want to check out. I only mention this up front because this is the last day, so may want to jump on it. Also, thanks to MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, TMCPNation.com. Well, where to begin? You know, a lot of time on the road over the last few days, which uh, meant a lot of time to to think and also to kind of uh, discuss a few things with family as we're traveling along. And, and I, I know, you know, some of them, oh, you probably talked a lot of politics. No, not really. I mean, you know, politics was going on and there was there was some stuff that was was happening. But you you would be surprised if you if you have the impression, well, you know, Brian, this is a political talk show and you talk about politics all the time. I do talk about politics, but usually as kind of a periphery sort of thing. It's just not the main focus in life. And and the reason for that is because I I reached a point where looking at mainstream media, particularly uh, corporate media, there's a very concerted effort to make us think that everything in the world is politics. And frankly, you look at the people who right now are pushing the hardest to get our attention the activists out there in public. These are the people who believe that that political power should be the dynamic behind every single human interaction. You know, and and typically they're looking at it from kind of a a Marxist, you know, oppressor, oppressed, oppressed kind of dynamic. Well, look at me. I'm one of the favored groups and you're not. So therefore, you know, now it's a political question of you have to be good to me or you have to do what I tell you to do because I have political power over you. Sorry, but homie, don't play that game, and I have no intention of doing so. But I do have some great information that I want to share with you today, some of which may be kind of politically uh, connected, but but most of it which isn't. And and the reason for this, I, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here for just a moment, but I've, just, I've had this reinforced once again. Sometimes it takes a little stepping away from, you know, the, the forest so that I can look back and see the trees. The time that I spent with family over this past uh, three or four days, 
really helped me to, to calibrate just how important family is. And I've known this all along, but sometimes I forget. Okay, I get distracted. Maybe you do too sometimes. It's, it's easy you know, to be like, oh my goodness, do you see the big explosions in Ukraine? My, oh, what is Russia up to? Okay, it's, it's interesting. And I can spend a lot of time scrolling through Twitter and looking for relevant comments or funny, you know, sick memes or whatever on, on the passing scene. But I just want to reinforce, in the end, nothing is as important as the relationships that you have with your family members. Nothing. There's, there's just nothing that even comes close. And, and sometimes we have to be reminded of this just, you know, through spending time together or at least unplugging from the, uh, you know, from the matrix for a little while. And with all the deception out there that's taking place, I mean, look, there, I've, I've been ringing the bell about, hey, propaganda's everywhere and you're going to have to really propaganda-proof yourself if you want to survive. It's only getting worse. And with AI and with some of the deep fake videos and so forth that can mimic not just, you know, video, but, but uh, voices and so forth, being able to tell what's real and what isn't is not going to get easier from this point. Really, we're, we're, I think we're getting, we're fast approaching the point, the critical moment where if you want to remain rooted in reality, you're going to have to choose to unplug from the matrix. And that's something a lot of people aren't willing to do. Now, I did have one other thing I wanted to share with you because I attended a graduation and man, it was it was an amazing commencement. The speaker, uh, Dr. I think it was Donald Sweeting. Anyway, wonderful, wonderful speaker. I'm going to be sharing some of his uh, comments over the next uh, few weeks just because there was so much in his talk. But something I want to offer that that, uh, steps out of the bromides and the platitudes never stop learning, follow your dreams, the future is your... What what all the commencement speakers are saying, uh, you know, right now as they speak to to these graduates. Something that I think would be extremely helpful if you're... Whether you're a graduate or not, I think that uh, this is one of the most helpful things that I have done, and I got to thank my friend Tyler for, for being the one to turn me on to this. Write your personal platform. It's, it's not, you know, a matter of, well, of course, I believe I have zealousness in, in the cause. But, you know, being zealous in pursuit of your ideals is not enough. You've got to make sure you know what your ideals are, that they're the right ones. Not just in their ends, but also in their means. And that's not easy. Good intentions aren't enough. you got to be a wise person. And to be a wise person, you have to know who you are in order to live your life with that greater sense of purpose. So for what it's worth, I just want to offer this quick recommendation. Write a personal platform. Now, platforms we usually think of with political parties, right? It's the formal set of principles or goals or ideals supported by a particular candidate or a party. And typically, political platforms are created to generate support among the voting public. A personal platform is not for that purpose. It's less about garnering pub- or popular support rather than it is about having a very clear understanding of what are your core ideals. And even more important than that, why do you hold them? So, for instance, my personal platform would start with an assessment of who I am, which, by the way, that's not synonymous with what I do for a living. So if I look at my life and I step back and zoom out, okay, I'm a communicator. In some ways, I'm an opinion leader, but I'm also a disciple. Now, too many people gauge their success by how they're perceived by others in terms of their employment or what they make or what they own. 
and that can blind them to their highest potential, which has a lot more to do with simply being an outstanding human being, the best person you can be. So you have to look at what what exactly am I? What was I born to do? What does it feel like I was born to do? Am I an educator? Am I, am I a healer? Am I a liberator? A creator of beauty? That's something you need to figure out. And I can't answer it for you. This is something you have to come up with on your own. The next part of my personal platforms is what states about is what states what I stand for. Now, this would be the core principles by which I choose to live my life, regardless of whether these principles are popular or not. So for me, those principles would include liberty, the golden rule, and self-sufficiency. And a good way to make or a good way to know, rather, what you stand for is to evaluate which ideals resonate with you so powerfully that you actually would choose to make room for them in your life. In other words, they matter enough that you would sacrifice other pleasing pastimes that just don't bring the same value into your life. Now, there's another part of my personal platform that states what I'm against, but I I urge approaching this part of your platform with caution because you don't want to get carried away to the point you start defining yourself by who your enemies are or what you fear. This is where you clarify your most deeply held personal principles and basically you're drawing the line. Here is where I'm not willing to compromise. For instance, I am opposed to coercion and collectivism. I don't care if it's left wing or right wing. I'm opposed to coercion and collectivism. And that doesn't mean that I see everyone who buys into them as as my enemy. I do see it as an opportunity to teach, wherever possible, a more productive way of living. The last part of my platform is my core message. And that is, what is the truth that's proclaimed by my actions, my words, how I choose to live my life? Now, this part may make you uncomfortable, but that's something that each one of us proclaims daily. We are proclaiming that message whether we mean to or not. So I hope you'll consider doing this. Uh, again, my, my friend Tyler um, shared his personal platform with me some time ago, and, and it just it really struck me how profound his platform was. It was simple, it was very direct, but it spoke to who he was, what he stands for, where those lines are drawn, and where he absolutely cannot and will not compromise. And I think that's what makes him one of the most solid individuals that I know. That's why I'm recommending. This is an exercise worth doing. And if you approach this with, you know, some serious thought, contemplation, maybe even prayer... Your personal platform just very well might turn out to be the roadmap to your destiny. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Some days I ask myself, why do you do what you do? Usually those are days when I'm struggling to get out of bed. Oh, man, why do I do this again? What's the purpose? And so just for for a bit of clarification, just between you and me, I do this because I know that there are people out there who recognize something's not right. I mean, on the one hand, corporate media tells me this, and they they make it sound plausible, but, uh, but something in my soul is screaming, this isn't right. And so part of why I do what I do is I'm trying to help people recognize where incorrect or distorted values 
are being portrayed to them as no, no, no. This is good. This is what you want. You want more. Uh, you want us to have more control over your life. We, you want us to make explicit materials available to your kids in the library. You want men in lingerie twerking for your children, and you think, no, that doesn't seem right. But it seems like at the same time, if I if I don't go along, then I'm going to be you know seen as intolerant. So, I'm I'm here to help people understand that. Uh, yeah, there, there are forces at work out there that do not represent you and do not represent your interests or your values. And that nagging little voice, you know, your conscience saying, hey, beware, this is leading you to a dangerous place. That voice is right. It, it needs to be listened to. Now, I don't just point out, you know, so see, there's the problem. But I also want to introduce you to alternative content providers who will tell you the truth as best they understand it and allow you to make up your mind for yourself. Now, I try to be one of those uh, providers myself, but I have access to a whole bunch of them, and you know these are my resources for wrong thinkers that I share on my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. And then last but not least, I do what I do because I know that there are people out there who feel a sense of calling. Maybe they don't recognize it as that. Maybe they would call it purpose or just a, a yearning to, I, there's something I need to do but I don't know what it is. I am here to affirm that, yes, that calling is real. And you're not crazy for, for sensing it and for wanting to act on it. I can't tell you what it is. That's up to you to find out. It wouldn't be yours otherwise. But I want to affirm that uh, God has his finger on, on a whole lot of people right now. And I suspect that you're probably one of them. And if you can figure out what it is, what purpose he has set aside for you and you alone to accomplish. You'll be amazed at, at the depth and, and the meaning that life takes on when you embrace that mission. So I wish you luck. I know right there, that's going to scare some people off. Okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> I don't even want to consider such things. I just think back to, to Lavoie Finicum. And I don't think there was a single time that I talked with him that I did not hear him refer to or even just flat out utter the words, we were born for this time. And I agreed with him when he said it. But the more I see the things that are taking place around us, the more I feel it. I feel it in my bones. We were born for this time. Not to, you know, to go out there and, you know, to cleanse the earth of the unrighteous, <laughs> but to, to fulfill a destiny of being sources of light in a time where light is desperately needed. So, whatever you're doing to accomplish that, keep it up. Now, having said that, I would be very shocked if there were anybody within the sound of my voice who hasn't been dealing with some level of depression over the last couple of years. And I know that there was a lot of stigma attached to this. Oh, you're talking mental illness here. We don't, we don't want to talk about that. People don't want to be seen as weak or otherwise, you know, compromised. So I want to share with you an essay that landed in my email inbox this morning from Paul Rosenberg. It's just titled, My Depression. He says, don't worry, it was a low-grade thing, not at all like the debilitating depression so many people suffer through. So low-grade, in fact, he says, I didn't even think of it as more than a bad mood. And he says, I normally wouldn't discuss such a thing beyond family and friends, but this time it seems like a good idea. And he says, if you've been reading my writings for any length of time, I'll take you as a, as a friend. So he says, I'm going to get a bit autobiographical today. He says, the main thing that depressed me over the past few years was the COVID mania. 
It was made significantly worse by a wild concentration of painful things that happened to me in the same short period. But he says the COVID mania was the flood that elevated them all. And he says at one point during this process, I realized I was starting to understand Tertullian, a man whose thought and whose life and thoughts rather were surrounded by persecution and who had previously seemed a rather distant figure to me. The whole affair, as I felt it, was uh, transportation back to a more barbaric time. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I had previously read pessimistic writers like H.L. Mencken and bristled against the idea that I might get that way as an old man. And he says, while I haven't actually got that way, the COVID time made me see how easily I could. Even my most optimistic writing of the period, like my book on the post-primate society, added to my depressed mood because it made me understand what was happening that much better. He says, it's a bit ironic that the mania depressed me. Because in perspective, it carried a very positive note. To spawn a mania in our time required previously unimaginable levels of invisible censorship. So that would be Google and pre-Musk Twitter. Brain addictions like Facebook, sycophantic media that would have made the 1950s blush, and the months-long worldwide house arrest of literally billions of people. Witch burnings and inquisitions didn't require any such infrastructure. But a mania in our time couldn't have happened without them. And he says, in a way, that's a very positive marker. Nonetheless, it all happened, and I had to watch. For a poorly tested quasi-vaccine and one that didn't even work, pretty much everyone got the disease anyway, armies of people were fired, untold numbers were kicked out of the public square, and families were hatefully split apart. He says, I know people who've been under house arrest for years. If they leave the house, they won't be back, allowed back in to see their grandkids. And all this is the supposed advocates for free speech and tolerance made a 180 on or made a 180 rather on their positions and gave malice free run over the world. People were proud to go on record hoping for the deaths of those who disagreed with them and they were cheered for it. Paul says I never supposed that I would see such a thing in my life but I did and it depresses me. And ironically he says it was the official end of the hysteria in the US where 15 days turned into 1142 days that prompted me to write this. As the edict expired, I wondered how long it would take people to come to grips with what they had done. While the thing was at its top in 2021, he says, I began thinking of the Japanese holdouts from World War II, wondering how many COVID holdouts we'd have and for how long. Even now, certain aspects of the disease and the vax are generally worth, aren't generally worth speaking about. And he says, I'll simply pass over all the bizarre and hateful things that were carried along in the mania's currents. So he says, it's been a low time for me, and perhaps for you too. It's one thing to read about manias in old history books, but it's quite another to live through one. Watching people you know hating others and even wishing for them to suffer. And yet here we are. The worst of it is over. He says, I think my string of personal difficulties is over as well. Nothing truly tragic was involved, but just a cluster of painful and stressful things that came my way nonetheless. He says, at this point, I suppose it's my job, and perhaps yours as well, to heal back up. And even for COVID bullies, there may be a silver lining to this. G.K. Chesterton used to say that no man was any good until he knew how bad he was capable of being. Perhaps some significant number of people will learn that lesson. But he says all of us are liable to being swept away by stupidities at some point in our lives. Perhaps those who are vulnerable at this moment will figure things out and get past them. But he says, as for me... I'll continue my favorite form of therapy, researching, writing, and sifting out the reality of things. 
In fact, he's presently sketching out an issue of his newsletter, Free Man's Perspective, on manias. So he says, I hope this exercise has been of some use to you. It has for me. Love to you all. I, I just can't overstate how much this man's writing has, has impacted me and, and impressed me. He's been one of the most uh, positive influences on my own thinking, not because he told me what to think, but because of how he encouraged me to approach the way that I think and the way that I do what I do. You know, when I share these things with you, I want to share the hard truths and the realities of what's going on around us, but I want to do it in a way that doesn't bring more anger or more fear to the situation. I think I might succeed sometimes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So in following up on Paul Rosenberg's essay about, uh, you know, his depression and how COVID kind of pulled the curtain back and showed, boy, there's an ugly side of humanity that we didn't even know was just lurking right below the surface. I want to share with you a similar article. This is from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. This one I read over the weekend, and it just was so good. It's called COVID and the Three Tests of Compliance. And I want to, before I share this, I want to preface this by saying, if you survived the past three years with your principles intact, you are very likely a confirmed wrong thinker. You are my brother or my sister. You are a fellow spirit, you know, a kindred spirit here. And uh, boy, there they're just there weren't a lot of people who were able to withstand that. that. By the way, that's not an indictment so much of everybody else. Yeah, they were stupid and we were smart. It's a matter of you, you had to have known at some level that uh, what was being promoted to us just didn't add up. And maybe you couldn't quite put it into, you know, context or put it, you know, you couldn't exactly explicitly state, well, this is the reason why, bop, 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 you know, and just outline those reasons. But you knew something wasn't right. And your instincts were correct. And if you followed your conscience right now, you're probably breathing a pretty big sigh of relief. Here's what Jeffrey Tucker had to say. He says, Jesus in the wilderness faced three temptations from the devil himself, material comfort, fame, and power. Needless to say, he declined every temptation and passed all three trials. Now he points out, so too did the couple seeking to enter the order of virtue in Mozart's The Magic Flute. They blasted right through the tests of silence, isolation, and fear. In the opera, much celebration ensues. Fairy tales, too, are often framed by three chances. The miller's daughter is given three chances to guess Rumpelstiltskin's name, for example. And he says, I'm sure you can think of other instances. And here we are in year three of of the times after the pandemic response sent our lives and those of billions into extraordinary upheaval. Now, he says, to most of us, it seems like a crazy blur of edicts, propaganda, revelations, fear, confusion, division, and shock, so much so that it's hard to keep the history straight. In fact, a lot of people just want everything forgotten or at least completely misremembered. Rather, Daily, we're bombarded by fake history that we know is wrong. We lived through it. In fact, he says the Brownstone Institute's been accumulating all the receipts, the emails, the speeches, edits, threats, impositions, demands, and so on. In the face of all this attempted revisionism, it's hard to keep one's bearing. But he says, one way to think about the last three years is a succession of compliance tests. 
How much liberty and good sense are we willing to surrender to the regime and on what terms? And he says the policies seem to be constructed for just that purpose. This is really interesting, and I think he's on to something here. As as if to fit the model, they came in three great waves. There were lockdowns, masks, and vaccine mandates. And then he goes through and he, he examines all three stages, reflecting on their demands and their terms, and he says it begins to make sense, at least from the point of view of those in control. So we start with lockdowns. Thank goodness for the lockdowns. This will end the pandemic. Now, he says the lockdowns hit us hard from mid-March 2020 and onward, imposed as if they were a conventional response to a circulating new pathogen, though they literally had no precedent in history. They were sweeping. They were closing schools, churches, small and medium-sized businesses, civic clubs like AA, bars and restaurants, gyms, even venues hosting weddings and funerals. Many states imposed stay-at-home orders, and the entire workforce was divided between essential and non-essential. While medical services were were reserved for only COVID cases and other extreme emergencies, while everything else was shut. And all of this was based on the astonishing announcement by the Trump administration, governors should close schools and communities that are near areas of community transmission, and bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other indoor and outdoor venues where people congregate should be closed. Now, at the March 16th, 2020 press conference, not a single reporter asked a critical question, even if this was only for two weeks, as it was promised. How is any of this compatible with the law and with the Bill of Rights? How is it that bureaucracies without any vote of any legislature can simply shut down an entire country? He says it was completely bizarre, so much so that most people figured there had to be some legitimate underlying rationale. But not everybody went along. Some hair salons and some churches remained open, but they found themselves pilloried by the media. Then the cops arrived, even SWAT teams, closing them by force. Kids had to stay home too. Moms and dads forced to leave the workforce to care for them at home, splitting their days, pretending to work on Zoom calls while their children pretended to be in school on Zoom too. It was a massive crush of technology and everyone had to adapt. Now he says those weeks were excruciating. Many, if not most people, knew that there was something very wrong, but they were unclear What? We could no longer meet with friends and neighbors to discuss, plus many people in our online communities seemed to be all in on the lockdowns. Fully believing this was the only way to control and eventually stop a pandemic. And yet, there we were, all of us living in this surreal scene, asked to believe the implausible and to give up what we loved the most by deference to a handful of people who said that they knew more than we knew. Those who didn't do the right thing were considered horrid and unscientific, insufficiently credulous toward our betters. So that was the first test of compliance. Then came the masks. Thank goodness for the masks. This will end the lockdowns. Now, he reminds us in the early days, there was no thought put into universal masking. It was never part of our history. There was a moment during the 1918 pandemic that one city tried masks, but not only did it not work, it actually produced massive political revolt. Not since then had masks for the general population ever been tried. Plenty of countries in the Far East had used masks to filter out smog on bad days, but that problem had never been something that affected the U.S. enough to make them a norm. And plus, in those days, the experts told everyone not to bother with them. The masks should be saved for medical personnel. In any case, they don't really work to control the spread of viruses like this. They're not the equivalent of using condoms to avoid infection from AIDS. A respiratory virus is something else entirely. And were people informed by evidence and science, but the evidence was nowhere in sight that masks achieve any real purpose. 
And then practically overnight, that advice changed. Part of the deal was that masks were the key to getting out of lockdowns. We could leave our home again if only we would wear a mask. And for those who don't like lockdown, well, now's your chance to leave it behind. You only need to comply with this second round of edicts. The first round, true, was pretty rough, but who can object to putting a cloth on your face? Surely no one. As Bill Gates said, we wear pants, so why not cover our faces too? It only makes sense. Jeffrey Tucker says people went along, and we went through a whole season or two in which we did not see smiles. Even the children had their faces covered. If you desire to breathe freely, you could fully expect to be denounced by strangers for daring to reject the demands of authorities. You could get thrown off a plane, put on a list, never to travel again. The hate was apparent everywhere, even in outdoor markets where gatekeepers would sternly instruct you to slap that cloth on your face. Those who resisted the masking demands were, like those who resisted the lockdowns, regarded as miscreants and political rebels. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, I personally found the whole demand of masking to be so preposterous. Masking has long been a sign of subservience that I spoke out against them, only to find myself attacked viciously in many public forums as a grandma killer and disease spreader. And this came from venues that previously had celebrated civil liberties. He says this demand for masking was later nationalized once the Biden administration took over. It was to be 100 days of masking to defeat the virus. But by now, no one believed anything coming from Washington. We knew for sure that the claim it was only 100 days, why 100, was propaganda. Eventually, it took a major court case to end the mask mandate for all travel, buses, trains, and planes. And even that's still being litigated to this day. As the Biden administration claims it has the power to impose such an order by virtue of the quarantine power of the federal government first granted in 1944. So looking back, he says the deal was pretty obvious. You can get out of lockdowns by masking. If you don't like complying with the first round of tests, well, here's another test for you. Comply with this and all your kvetching about lockdowns can come to an end. Just go along. What kind of pathology do you have to do you have to keep from continuing to in, to, to keep from continuing to indulge this pointly rebellious habit? Pointlessly rebellious habit, rather. You're probably a conspiracy theorist or QAnon or hanging around people from the radical right. Just do what you're told and everything will be fine. But he says things are not fine because you irrationally cling to your freedom. But of course, the government broke the deal. Masking didn't really end the restrictions. They continued on anyway. And many are still with us, even the track and trace surveillance and restrictions on movement. The signs that demand we socially distance still festoon airports and malls, even if everyone ignores them. Now we get to the vaccines. Oh, thank goodness for the vaccines. They will end the lockdowns and the masks. This was the third test of, test of compliance. But this time it was more explicit. If you don't like the lockdowns and masking, the way to get out is pretty simple. Get the shot. If you get the shot, you can travel around freely. You can even take off your mask. But this is the way we end the pandemic. But there must be broad compliance. Everyone authorized to get the vaccine under the emergency use authorization should do it. Now, a lot of people uh, had to get it. Thousands were fired for refusing to get it. But that was the product of uh, get the jab or lose your job. Millions displaced, and that only intensified the campaign, which was then extended to children. Then came the booster and the bivalent. And all the while, the news concerning their effectiveness got grimmer because it didn't stop transmission, thus removing all public health rationale behind the mandates. It did not stop infection. You got COVID anyway. In fact, by virtue of immunity and printing, you could become even more vulnerable. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing this wonderful essay from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. The three tests of compliance that came along with COVID. Yep, it started with lockdowns, then it progressed to masks, and then it went to mandates, vaccine mandates. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to tell you, look, with the, with the first one, with, with lockdowns, you know, um, well, I didn't have a whole lot of choice to go along with a lot of it because, frankly, a lot of businesses closed. I worked from home, so it wasn't as big of a deal for me. But for the most part, I went along with it. Okay, we don't go to church anymore. We have church at home and, you know, people stay. You know, we had friends who'd want to come and see us, but we'll go sit out on the front lawn in our lawn chairs and, you know, to, to, to keep each other safe and everybody's getting tested and so forth. But with the masking, that's where I really started to have some heartburn and kind of started pushing back. And, and uh, I won't go into all the details here, but let's just say I, I took a fair amount of heat for doing so. But when it came to the vaccine and especially with the, uh, the mandates, you either take the jab or you lose your job. That's where, as I've told you before, my line in the sand became a trench. I'm absolutely not going to go along with this. And going back to Jeffrey uh, Tucker's article here, he says the thinking behind that third hammer blow turned out to be a lie too. Your decision to surrender your bodily autonomy to the vaccine that did not work did not gain back your freedom any more than the mask or the lockdowns did. All three compliance demands, each predicated on the idea that it would make the virus go away and gain back rights and liberties, turned out to be a ruse of one sort or another. And crucially, the new demand came with the promise that if you just believe in and comply with the newest thing, the older thing that you hated will go away. So what's the problem? Just give in to this new thing and all will be well. But he says, uh, yet the vaccine mandate was the most egregious by some measures. If lockdowns were the war... The vaccine mandate was conscription. It took hold of your body and demanded you allow via a needle in your skin in a government-funded and indemnified potion about which you, that you let in a government-funded indemnified potion about which you knew nothing. It was the equivalent of drafting young people out of their prime to kill and be killed in a foreign land. And we know how that ended for states that have tried it, not only in riots, but in revolutions. So the third test was for many the act that flipped the switch in a lot of people's minds. It was a bridge too far. That was the act that caused millions to rethink everything about the pandemic response and their compliance all along. Even for those who went along with it, the bitterness remains and grows. He says, from legend and literature, this is how things are usually presented. Not with, not with one inviting invitation to go along, but rather with three chances to comply each with the assurance that all will be well if we just give up our recalcitrant desire to think and act for ourselves. And at each stage, every one of us faces enormous pressure, not just from government, but also from family, friends, and co-workers. And he reminds us of the, you know, the three temptations of Christ. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. There's material comfort. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Fame and social approval. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Power. So the three tests in this case turned out to be more like hammer blows in Mahler's symphony. Signifiers of disaster and death in this case pertaining to our rights and liberties. Now here's the painful part. Jeffrey Tucker points out, sure enough, even now, the remnants of all three are still with us. There are still capacity restrictions in place as remnants of the original lockdowns. Masks are still required in many cities and venues. 
and the vaccine mandates are still being enforced. And the pandemic emergency is still in place and will be for several more months. So just as one is ending, you can be sure that another is beginning. The New York Times just sounded the alarm about H5N1 bird flu, which they say could kill half of humanity if it crosses over from birds to humans. And we can be certain that the three trials will be visited upon us again. So he asks, have we learned? What will be our response in the next round of trials? I get it. That's, that is some hard stuff to consider, but it's worth considering. And again, my, my deepest admiration to everybody who came through those first three tests of compliance with flying colors. Okay, three quick articles I want to point out here. I've got these included in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I know the world's financial stability is pretty shaky right now. If you want to check out a great article, Daisy Luther, who blogs as the organic prepper, has three layers of financial preparedness, and they are so good. I'll just touch on them very quickly. Your financial foundation. This is paying off debt, establishing an emergency emergency fund, getting your budget to a manageable level. The theme here is learning to live with frugality. It's a lost art, but that's that's layer one. Layer two, tangible essentials. These are the things that uh, you will want to invest in. So let's say that you uh, didn't uh, didn't go to the store for a whole month. Could you take care of it out of the things you actually have in stock at your home? Could you uh, do things like gardening? Can you fix your own car? Can you fix things in your house? Can you take care of medical or dental issues? Do you have sturdy manual tools? And then layer three is financial assets. And by the way, it's not just, you know, buy gold. <laughs> she just says, you know, there, there are things that, uh, that you really need to consider as to what will be valuable. Um, gold and silver, yes, they could be, but, you know, a Bic lighter could also be very valuable, assuming the electricity was off, you know, for an extended period of time. Wonderful advice. Again, this is from Daisy Luther, the organic prepper. Well worth your time. Next, oh, this great article from Brandon Smith. Tolerance is overrated. It's time to start gatekeeping American society again. You know, we have heard so much about tolerance from likely from the most intolerant people you're ever going to meet. People who use zealotry to achieve their objectives, highly intolerant of people who don't want to participate in their movement or in their activism. That's why they use the slogan, silence is violence, because by refusing to support them or just by keeping to yourself, you automatically become their enemy, even if you're not out there directly opposing them. Brandon Smith says at the bottom, what these leftists are really promoting is a series of double standards while using accusations of bigotry as a weapon to silence their critics. They've taken control of the narrative because there are a lot of Americans afraid to say the truth out loud. And the truth is tolerance is overrated and destructive. Gatekeeping and discrimination to a certain degree are essential to the survival of humanity. That is to say, intolerance of certain people, beliefs, actions, and ideologies is actually a good thing. He says we need to bring back rational intolerance. Now, I know some people, it's a dog whistle for racists is what you're saying there. No, no, this is uh, people who are, are going to stay connected to reality and refuse to be bullied by those who would use the, if you're not with me, you're against me, Sith, you know, kind of reasoning. Anyway, it's, uh, we are in the midst of full-blown fourth-generation warfare, and uh, it's, it's not going to go away. It's not going to leave you alone. You may think, I found a convenient place to just kind of wait things out. 
There is no safe place to retreat to. You will not be allowed to have principles. You will not be allowed to call out bad behaviors. Everything that is evil will be made acceptable. So Brandon Smith says this is the time to grow a backbone and protect that next generation from indoctrination. And he says it's not hypocrisy to discriminate against the dark side. And he says if that makes me a bigot, so be it. I would rather live in a civilization of reasonable bigots than watch the world burn in the name of foolish equity. This guy always writes great essays. This is one of his finest. And again, it's in my show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. Com. Last but not least, Caitlin Johnstone. She explains how ideological echo chambers make us stupid. Now, look, I'm, I'm like anybody else. I appreciate viewpoints that seem to validate my own or confirm, yep, you were right. And sometimes I feel a little bit smug. All right, well, I knew it. I knew I was right. But her point here is, if all you're listening to, if the only information you are examining comes from people that you agree with you're missing out she says you, you've got to be willing to think outside of your own ideology and if you don't you're going to be misled you're going to have a ring through your nose you won't sense it until it's too late I like how she puts it. She says, empire propaganda is tailored for each ideological echo chamber so it slides in with as little resistance as possible. We need more militarized police to fight thugs. We need internet censorship to fight right-wing extremism. We need to fight China because the Asian commies are coming for us. We need to fight Russia because Putin is a homophobic Hitler. She says, this is why I consider it a win anytime I can get healthy ideas and information over the echo chamber's walls. She says, whether I've got a bunch of liberals or rightists in my notifications responding to something that I put out there, she takes it as a badge of honor because she says that means that I'm actually getting through. I'm punching holes in the matrix. Her point is very simple. You're not supposed to agree with every political opinion we're seeing. It's natural. It isn't natural, rather, to agree with any person or political faction all the time. In fact, if you find yourself agreeing with your preferred slice of the political spectrum all the time on every issue, that just means you've stopped thinking for yourself and you're letting yourself be pulled along by the herd. Disagreement is normal. Don't forget that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.